Good morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, please turn to the book of Colossians. And as you turn there, uh, let me ask you a question. What do you think about when you think about authority? Well, I'll tell you what I think about. I think about my middle school principal. You see, back when I was in the eighth grade, Principal May became the principal at my school. And what I remember about her was that she was someone who had authority. And whenever she would walk through the hallways, the students would spit out their gum, they would stand up a little bit straighter, and they would make sure that they got to class on time. Principal May was someone who had authority. But what do you think about when you think about authority? Perhaps you think about your boss at work. Or maybe you think about a politician or the president of the United States. You see, I think most of us associate authority with negative emotions, right? We don't like authority. And the reason we don't like authority is because we see people abusing authority. But here's the thing. The answer to bad authority is not to get rid of authority. The answer to bad authority is good authority. Because good authority, properly exercised, is meant to be a blessing from God. Listen to what Jonathan Lehman says in his book on authority. He says, good authority strengthens and grows others. It authors and creates. It's the teacher teaching. It's the coach coaching. And it's the mother mothering. It's rules for a game. It's lines on a road. And it's lessons for a child. Good authority, properly exercised, is meant to be a blessing from God. Friends, God has created a world with authority structures that are designed to bless us. And so as Christians, we must think about these authority structures in a way that pleases God and honors the Lord Jesus Christ. Go to Colossians 3, verses 18 to 21. In our study passage today, the Apostle Paul brings us home. He addresses the different kinds of authority structures in our family. And he shows us that authority can be a blessing from God. It can be a blessing from God if it is rooted in the Lord Jesus Christ. Reading from Colossians 3, starting in verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Would you pray with me? Our God and our Heavenly Father, we always need your Spirit to understand and apply your Word. We especially ask today that by your Spirit, you would illuminate our hearts, that we might be convicted about this passage. We ask this because we come to a text that might be hard for some of us. It might be hard because of experiences that we've had in the past. Oh God, would you bring healing through the preaching of your Word, that we might live lives that honor your Son, the Lord Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. 
Well, in the book of Colossians, uh, Paul has been teaching us that Christ is the center of the universe. And since Christ is the center of the universe, then our lives must be Christ-centered. And so from chapter 3 to the end of the book, what we have are Paul's instructions about how to live a Christ-centered life. Now, in our passage, Paul talks about how Christians are to relate to their own household. In other words, how do we live Christ-centered lives with respect to our family? And in showing us here what a Christ-centered family looks like, he also shows us what living under authority looks like. A first in the marriage relationship, and then second in the parent-child relationship. And his goal is to show us that if authority is exercised under the lordship of Christ, it can be a blessing from God. The passage can be divided up into four parts. A first, the submission of a wife. A second, the love of a husband. A third, the obedience of children. And then fourth, the encouragement of parents. So the submission of a wife, the love of a husband, the obedience of children, and the encouragement of parents. Point number one, the submission of a wife. Look at verse 18. He says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, the word submit there is a military term, right? It means to be under someone in rank. Uh, The word is usually used to describe someone who places themselves under someone else's authority. It's sort of like the way a lieutenant will place himself under the authority of a general. Now, whenever we talk about uh, submission and authority, uh, people tend to feel a little bit suspicious. You see, our culture today is against submitting to authority, especially when it comes to biblical submission in marriage. So uh, I was once asked to read scripture at a wedding, and it was a wedding where uh, I knew that there would be many unbelievers present. And, you know, everything was fine, right? Their ceremony was going well until I went up to read from Ephesians 5, 22 to 33, which, by the way, is a typical passage people read at weddings. And boy, I got to tell you, if looks could kill, I would have died a thousand times over. So you see, ideas of submission in marriage is quite the controversial subject today. But, but despite all the controversy, a Christian should not forget that the Bible is clear that wives are to submit to their husbands. Now, there's a sense in which submission is appropriate in many aspects of the Christian life. Right? The Christian life is a life that is submitted to authority. Let me give you some examples. For example, children. Right? Children are to submit to their parents. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 6. Right? Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Citizens are to submit to the government. That's what Paul says in Romans 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. So unless the government enforces laws that would cause you to sin, you should submit to the government. And then church members. right? Church members are to submit to their pastors. Listen to what uh, Hebrews 13, 17 says about how church members should relate to their pastors. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. 
So you see, the Bible tells us over and over again to, to recognize the authority structures that God places in our lives and to gladly submit to them. And so this is what Paul commands wives to do, right? To submit to the God-given authority of their husbands. Now, whenever we talk about submission, uh, I think we, we have to address the widespread misunderstanding about what biblical submission is. So, so what are some misunderstandings or, or misconceptions about biblical submission? Let me share with you uh, three things that biblical submission is not. Number one, submission does not imply inferiority. Submission does not imply inferiority. You see, biblical submission does not imply that women are somehow inferior to men. And we know this because in Genesis 1, we see that God created both men and women in his image. So both men and women are of equal value as God's image bearers. In fact, when it comes to salvation, Paul says that there's no distinction between men and women at all. Listen to what he says in Galatians 3.28. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So when it comes to salvation, there is no distinction between men and women at all. So submission does not imply inferiority, right? Because beneath all the differences between men and women, and there are differences, right? There's a fundamental equality that exists. And this fundamental equality is rooted in creation and then affirmed in redemption. Number two, submission does not mean passivity. Submission does not mean passivity. Submission does not mean that a wife ought to be passive with respect to her husband. That, that she never has an opinion or, or even corrects her husband when he's wrong. That is not what submission means at all. You, you see, some people believe, I, I know you don't, but some people believe that, that submission means that wives are to be seen but never heard. That, that she should never speak her mind and offer her husband wisdom. But Proverbs 31 tells us that an excellent wife is one that opens her mouth with wisdom. And the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. So you see, an excellent wife is not a passive wife. Right, friends? Only, uh, only an insecure husband would want a passive wife. And only a foolish husband would not listen to the authority, uh, to the, to the wisdom of his wife. So submission does not mean passivity. And then lastly, submission is never absolute. A submission is never to be absolute. Right? A wife's submission to her husband is never absolute because only submission to God is absolute. God stands at the top. Your husband is the head of the household, but Christ is the king of the universe. This means that a wife will sometimes have to go against her husband. Sometimes a wife will have to go against her husband when her husband asks her to do something that goes against God. Brothers and sisters, a wife should never agree to participate in any type of sinful behavior with her husband. Let me give you some examples, right? These are some extreme examples, but nevertheless, they're real-life examples. A wife should never lie about her husband's sin in order to preserve his reputation. A wife should never lie about her husband's sin in order to preserve his reputation. 
a wife should also never agree to keep abuse a secret. Whether it's a physical abuse or, or sexual abuse or child abuse. She should never keep his abusive behavior a secret. A wife should also never agree to help him steal anything or to do anything for that matter that dishonors the Lord Jesus Christ. So a wife's submission is never to be absolute. Well, okay, so then what, what does submission mean? Right? What exactly does biblical submission mean? Well, biblical submission means that God has placed a husband in leadership and authority over his wife. It acknowledges God's intention in creation. It acknowledges that Eve was created from Adam to be a helper for Adam. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. And neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It also remembers that marriage's greatest purpose is to point to Christ in the church. Right, right. You do know that, right? That marriage has a greater purpose than just, just companionship. Marriage's greatest purpose is to point to Christ in the church. Look at what Paul says in Ephesians 5. He says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as a church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So, the purpose of marriage is to point to Christ in the church. And biblical submission is part of what makes this possible. Biblical submission also says this. It says, I respect and affirm my husband's leadership. And because I respect his leadership, I trust him to lead me. It says, I look to his leadership in all matters, even when I might disagree. And it also means that I encourage him when he fails. And especially means this, especially means that I enable his leadership, right? I use my time, my energy, and my abilities to support him in his calling to lead the family. That's what biblical submission means. Now, Paul qualifies this command in verse 18. So take a look at the end of verse 18. Uh, he qualifies it by telling us about the motive for a wife's submission. He says that wives are to submit as it's fitting in the Lord, which means to submit in a way that's befitting of a Christian, to, to submit in a way that's appropriate for someone who, who belongs to the Lord and wants to love the Lord and honor the Lord. Which, by the way, means that wives are not to submit because their husbands deserve it. Right? I mean, let's just be real. Right? We don't deserve it. Right? Husbands are not worthy of their wives' submission. Uh, if I had to earn my wife's submission, I would have been done. Right? I would have been done after the first few days of our marriage. No one is worthy. So wives are not to submit because their husbands deserve it. Rather, they are to submit because Christ deserves it. Because Christ is worthy. So you see, submission is, is most fundamentally about obeying the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, okay, so, so Christian wives, how are you doing? <clears throat> how are you doing when it comes to submitting to your husbands? Do, do you respect your husband's leadership? You know, some of you are thinking, yeah, sure, I do, right? I acknowledge that he's the leader. I tell him all the time, you're the boss. But here's the thing. You, you, you might say he's the boss, but do you actually respect his leadership? 
I once heard someone say, you know, my husband's the head, but I'm the neck, and I could turn him wherever I please. But is that really submission? Here's the question. The question is this. Do you look to his leadership in all matters, even when you might disagree? Or do you only follow him in areas where you already agree? And then when you disagree, you criticize him or you turn him wherever you please. What about when he fails? Do you encourage him when he fails? Do you enable his leadership? Do you use your time, energy, and abilities to support him in his calling to lead? All right, let me give you two ways to apply this. So I have two short applications, and they're both for those who are not yet married, all right? They're for the single adults in our church. First, an application for the single women in our church. Don't marry someone you can't respect. Don't marry someone you can never see yourself submitting to. Because the Bible says that you have to submit to your husband, right? You have to submit to him, and you have to respect him. And so if you can't do that, don't marry him. Right? Don't marry him just because he's cute. Don't, don't marry him because you think that you're going to be able to change him. You're not going to be able to change him. In other words, if he's a bum, he doesn't deserve you. Don't marry him. Marry someone who is respectable. Marry someone you can respect. Because if you marry him, Right? If you go against the advice of your friends and your parents and all the people who you respect, well, you're going to have to respect them. You're going to have to submit to them. So, so make it easier on yourself. Marry someone you can respect. Now, the second application then is, is of course, for the, for the single men. Uh, for those of you who are single men, marry someone who will respect you and submit to you. Uh, marry some, uh, make sure that you marry someone who believes in biblical submission. This, of course, assumes that you're a respectable Christian, and it assumes that you're actually ready for marriage, right? So, so if that's not you, then you shouldn't even be thinking about it. But, but, it, but by any chance, if that is you, then marry someone who will support and affirm your leadership. Okay, now let, let's turn our attention to the husbands, all right? So the wives are off the hot seat. Let's turn our attention to the husbands. Point number two, the love of a husband. The love of a husband. Look at verse 19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, to love your wife means more than just having, you know, romantic feelings for your wife. You see, the word love is agape. And the word agape means to love sacrificially or to love unconditionally, right? So, so it means that husbands are to love their wives sacrificially and unconditionally. They're, they're to treasure their wives and to, to delight in their wives. By the way, the word love is also in the present tense, which means that husbands are to always be actively loving their wives. So see, love is not just a feeling. It's not just a one-time thing, right? It's a choice. It's something that you can do. The word uh, agape is also in the imperative mood. It's the it's in the imperative mood, which means that it's a command. So it's something that husbands are to do whether or not they feel like it in the moment. Right? So husbands are to love their wives out of obedience to the Lord. Now, uh, have you ever wondered why the Bible contains so many commands for husbands to love their wives? 
right? In fact, there are four commands in the New Testament for husbands to love their wives. But only once are wives told to love their husbands, right? Only once in Titus 2, where it says that older women are to teach the younger women to love their husbands. But in four separate places, husbands are told to love their wives. Why is that? Have you ever wondered that? Like, why the disparity? Well, one theory is because these commands are given to our respective weaknesses. You see, men are generally weaker when it comes to companionship and love, right? Men often forget to love. Men seem to love their work, they seem to love their sports, and they seem to love their hobbies, but they sometimes struggle with love and companionship. You see, these commands are given to our respective weaknesses. Men need more help when it comes to love. But I think that the, the greatest reason, or the primary reason, is that God is concerned about how husbands exercise their authority. You see, when God gives authority, whether it's to parents or to pastors or to the government, he always does it not for the good of those who exercise it, but always for the good of others. Husbands are to exercise authority for the good of their wives. That is why it is so important that they exercise it in a loving way. So husbands, love your wives because the purpose of your authority is for her good, not your own. Now, how are husbands to love their wives? Uh, What exactly does this love look like? Well, this is where we have to turn to the book of Ephesians. So so turn in your Bibles two books over uh, to the book of Ephesians and go to Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, In Ephesians 5, we have the parallel to our passage in Colossians. And in Ephesians, Paul shows us what a husband's love should look like. First, go to Ephesians 5, verse 25. Paul says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Right, so stop right there. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So you see, a husband is to love his wife in the same way that Christ loved the church. This is the kind of authority that husbands are to exercise. It's a loving authority that is modeled after the love of Christ. Friends, a husband's love says this. It says, I will never leave you nor forsake you because that's what Christ said to us. It says, I will make sacrifices for the sake of your well-being because that's what Christ did for us when he died as a sacrifice for sins. Let's remember this, that Jesus' entire life was defined by a sacrificial, self-giving love. And husbands are to imitate this love. Uh, Furthermore, uh, take a look at verse 28. So you're already in Ephesians 5. Go to Ephesians 5, verse 28. Paul says, in the same way, Husbands should love their wives as well, love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. So you see, a husband is to care for his wife. Right? He is to care for his wife just as much as he cares for his own body. He is to promote her good above his own. 
right? That's what it means to, to nourish and cherish your wife. In addition, a husband's love is a love that leads. A husband's love is a love that leads and takes responsibility. You see, husbands serve their wives by leading them. That's what biblical headship means, right? Paul says that the husband is the head of the wife, and the head is the part of the body that leads. So what's implied here is spiritual leadership. A husband is someone who gives spiritual direction to the family. A husband remembers to pray for his wife and to pray with his wife, right? And, and, and a husband leads family devotions and models godly behavior in the home. And this leadership is the type of leadership that takes responsibility, right? True leadership never says, it's my wife's fault, right? Don't look at me, it's, it's my wife's fault. Brothers, even if it is your wife's fault, there's a sense in which it's still your fault. You let it happen. It happened on your watch. True leadership is leadership that takes responsibility. Okay, so, so let's summarize this, right? A husband's love is a sacrificial love that cares, cherishes, leads, and takes responsibility. It's a sacrificial love that cares, cherishes, leads, and takes responsibility. Husbands, love your wives. Now, if positively husbands are to love their wives, well, then negatively they are not to be harsh with them. Right? He says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, um, to be harsh means more than just being mean. Right? Paul's not saying, you know, don't be so mean. Now, you see, the word harsh means embittered or resentful. In other words, in the event that, that their wives are not submissive, so in the event that, that wives, that your wives are not submissive, husbands are not to become bitter and resentful towards their wives. They're not to try to control them or rule over them in a heavy-handed way. Listen to what the apostle Peter says to husbands. He says, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Live with your wives in an understanding way. In other words, don't be harsh with your wife. Don't become embittered and resentful. Honor her. Be gentle with her. And love her well. Uh, Matthew Henry once pointed out that Eve was made out of a rib out of the side of Adam. Right? We know that in, from, from Genesis 2. Right? Eve was made out of a rib out of the side of Adam. And he makes here not so much a theological application, but really a practical application. Listen to what he says. He says, she was not made out of his head to rule over him, nor was she made out of his feet to be trampled by him. But she was made out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected by him, and near his heart to be loved by him. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Well, okay, so, so husbands, how are you doing? Right? How are you doing when it comes to loving your wife? Do you exercise authority in a loving way? Do you exercise authority in such a way that it causes your wife to flourish? You know, some of you are thinking, you know, my wife's already flourishing, right? What are you talking about, right? My wife is already flourishing. But brothers, does she flourish because of you or does she flourish in spite of you? 
Uh, there's a story about the wife of a man named Charles Lindbergh. And maybe you're familiar with that name, Lindbergh. Uh, Lindbergh was the first person to fly across the Atlantic Ocean alone. Right? So he was a pilot. And his wife, Anne Lindbergh, who was, who was a writer, uh, frequently wrote about her husband. But, but when she wrote about him, she always wrote about her husband was not just a national hero, although he was. She always wrote about how he was a hero to her, right? Because he was the reason she flourished. He was the reason that she flourished as a wife, uh, as a mother, as a writer, and as a person. Listen to what she says, and I quote, To be deeply loved is a great liberating force. The sheer fact of finding myself love was unbelievable and changed my world. I was given confidence and strength and even a new character. The man I married loved me and believed in me, and consequently, I found that I could do so much more than I ever realized. Now, friends, you know, husbands are not to take the place of the Lord Jesus Christ. But, but as, you, as you hear this testimony, I wonder if you, if you think about what the love of a husband can do. So husbands, let me ask you, could you be doing more to promote the flourishing of your wife? That does your authority bring grace and blessing to your wife? If your wife were to write a story about you, would she say, the man I married loved me and believed in me, and consequently, I found I could do so much more than I ever realized? Friends, by God's grace, may our church be filled with such husbands. Okay, now, the children. Point number three, the obedience of children. The obedience of children. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Okay, so children. And I think Paul here is actually referring to children. He's referring to those who are young and still living at home. Right? So, so, you know, the book, the letter to the Colossians would have been read in front of entire families. And Paul is specifically writing to the children. So, so if you're young and if you're here today and you are less than 18 years old, right? I'm just trying to see how many of you guys there are. All right? If you're still living at home, well, then Paul is speaking directly to you. Children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. So Paul wants you to know three things about obeying your parents, all right? Three things. If you have a pencil or a pen, write this down. First, he talks about the scope of your obedience. Then he talks about the quality of your obedience. And then lastly, the motive for your obedience, all right? So the scope, the quality, then the motive for your obedience. All right, so first, the scope, the scope of your obedience. Children, obey your parents in everything. Now, some of you are thinking, you know, why does it have to be everything? Why, why can't it be some things or most things or things that I agree with or things that make sense? But God says everything. This command is comprehensive. So, so unless your parents are asking you to do something that is sinful, you must obey. Especially if you're a follower of Jesus, you're responsible to obey your parents. So obey your parents. Right? Obey your parents even if you disagree and even if it doesn't make sense. Obey your parents even if it's hard or difficult. 
and obey your parents all the way right away, right? Don't, don't just go halfway, right? You have to go all the way. And, and don't delay your obedience. So, you know, Ed used to tell me that um, whenever his kids would delay their obedience, I think he's talking about his sons, right? Um, he would punish them twice, right? First for disobeying and then second for delaying. It makes sense, right? It's sinful to disobey and it's sinful to delay. So obey your parents all the way, right away. Next, the quality of your obedience. Obedience to your parents must come from the heart. You see, the word obey comes uh, implies an attitude of the heart. Right? It means that you don't just give lip service to your parents, but you gladly and joyfully obey. All right, so, so most of you grew up in Christian homes, right? And so you know that it's not smart to just outrightly disobey. Right? Christian parents don't play around. Especially parents at North Shore. They, they don't play around. So, so at least externally, you will obey. But let me ask you, do you resent their decisions even if you abide by it? Do you resent your parents even if you obey? Maybe they tell, they tell you that you can't attend a certain party, you can't watch that show on Netflix, spend less time on your cell phone, and you do what they say, but you are angry with them. You resent your parents. So sometimes I can tell when my kids are not happy with my decisions, right? So, so my six-year-old Bethany, who's, who's, um, who's our most well-behaved child, uh, we, we call her Bestiny. Um, so, so Bethany will always obey, but sometimes she'll wear this frown on her face. And she does this thing with her eyebrows, right? So I know that she's not happy about it. Is that you? You obey, but you're not happy. You just can't wait till your parents get off your back. But you see, obedience has to come from the heart. You have to believe in your heart that, that obeying them is good for you, and that it'll ultimately cause you to flourish. Okay, now the motive for your obedience, all right? That, this, is, this is the most important one. What's the motive for your obedience? Paul says that the reason you should obey is because your obedience pleases the Lord. Right? Obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Now, this does not mean that, that, that by obeying, you will make the Lord love you more. That by obeying, you, you get to earn God's love. God loves you because He does. He loves you because He's kind and He's gracious. You know, it's the same way with your parents, right? They'll never love you any less. But they can be displeased when you disobey. So obey in order to please your parents and ultimately to please the Lord. That should be the motive of your obedience. Not just to avoid punishment, but to please the Lord. Oh, okay, so, so children, how are you doing? Right? Is your life characterized by obedience? Do you respect your parents? So parents, um, one way you can tell if a teenager respects their parents is by looking at their eyes. You know, some people say that uh, the eyes are the doorway to the soul. This is especially true for a teenager. Right? So when you're talking to your teenager, look at the teenager's eyes and count how many times their eyes roll when they're talking to you. That'll tell you whether or not they respect you. Friends, God has placed your parents in your lives for your good so that you can flourish. Right? That's what we've been talking about, right? Good authority properly exercised is meant to be a blessing from God. This is also what Moses said in Exodus 20 in the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So do you obey your parents? 
Now, some of you are thinking, you know, you don't understand my parents, right? My parents are not good at being parents. Now, that might be true. But remember, your obedience is not based on how good they are. You obey in order to obey Jesus. You obey in order to please Jesus. So obey and do so with a joyful heart. All right, now to my last point, the encouragement of parents. So I'm going to bring the adults back into the picture. The encouragement of parents, verse 21. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Now, Paul here addresses fathers, right? Because fathers were responsible for the discipline of their children. But but this command could also be applied to both parents. In fact, some people think that the word for fathers can also be translated parents. So we should just think of verse 21 as applying to both moms and dads. All right, so so moms, you are not free to tune out for this part of the sermon. Uh, There's a story about a pastor who preached a message on this passage. And afterwards, a mother came up to him and asked, so fathers can't provoke, but can mothers provoke? No, 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 no. This this command is, is also for you. So mothers and fathers do not provoke your children. Which, which, by the way, means don't exasperate your children or, or don't antagonize your children. Now, how do parents provoke their children? Well, let me give you a few ways uh, from my own observations. We provoke them when we unfairly criticize them. I think we provoke our children when we unfairly criticize them. Now, I'm not talking about, you know, correcting them when they're wrong, right? Because you should correct them when they're wrong. I'm talking about criticism that's meant to put them down. Criticism that's unfair and excessive. Criticism that grows out of frustration. So so we provoke our children when we unfairly criticize them. We also provoke them when we compare them to other children. Right? Why can't you be like those kids? Why can't you be a little more like them? We also provoke them when we place unrealistic demands on them. And since our demands are unrealistic, they become so frustrated, they, they just stop trying. Right? Why should I try if I can't get anything right? If I can never be good enough? We also provoke them when we punish them too harshly. When the punishment doesn't fit the crime. And it's just over the top. Which, by the way, always happens when we discipline them in anger. Parents, this is why you should never discipline your children in anger. You provoke your children. And then lastly, we provoke them when we never say anything positive about them. Right? We only tell them their faults. And we never tell them that we love them. And so the consequence of all of this is ultimately discouragement. That's the consequence of provoking your children. They become discouraged. They get crushed and they lose the drive to excel. So do you see the pattern here in these four verses? Right? Do you see the pattern? Whoever has authority has to be careful with how they exercise authority. You see, with this much authority, there's always a danger of being too heavy-handed. Like husbands, parents must exercise their authority in a loving way. Because God gave you your authority so that your children would flourish. Right? Your authority is for their benefit, not your own. Right? Authority was not given to you to make your life easier. 
Authority was not given to you so that you can provoke them when you're frustrated or inconvenienced by their behavior. Your authority is for their benefit. So parents, exercise your authority with their best interest in mind, with the goal of leading them to Christ. And do so in an encouraging way as to promote the good of your children. Now, for a moment, uh, I just want to address those of you here who are not believers. Right? If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I, I wonder what you think about when, you, when you're listening to all this stuff about authority. So, so if you're here today and you are not a Christian, I just want to give you an overall picture of what Christianity teaches about authority. Be- because what I just talked about is not all that there is. You see, the Bible teaches that as human beings, we all live in a constant state of rebellion against authority. This is true of all of us, right? We have all rebelled against God's authority. And so because of our rebellion, we deserve God's wrath. But God sent his son to live a perfect life and to die on a cross in our place for our sins. The one who has all authority gave himself up for the people who rebelled against his authority. And he rose from the dead, and he, Jesus, now sits at the right hand of God with all the authority in heaven and on earth. Salvation comes through him alone, by faith alone. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, do not misunderstand. I am not asking you to place your hope in any type of human authority. Because all human authority is corrupted in some way. I'm asking you to place your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ. All right, let me close with four points of application. Uh, Here are four ways I think we can apply this passage to our lives. Application number one, make sure that you live out your faith at home. Make sure that you live out your faith at home. Friends, our Christian lives are to be lived out in our everyday lives at home. A Christ-centered life means having a Christ-centered home. You see, before the Lord will call you to do greater things for his kingdom, right? before he calls you to serve maybe as an elder or a deacon or a missionary or a biblical counselor or anything else, he wants you to be faithful at home. He wants you to be faithful with the the mundane, everyday things in your life. God cares about your home. I mean, just think about, for example, the qualifications for elders, right? One of the qualifications is that a man must manage his household well. It's the same for deacons. Right, let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. So let me ask you, how are things at home? Are you living out your faith at home? You know, if we're honest, the home is often the most challenging place to live out our faith. Uh, if we're honest, we'll admit that what Paul is calling us to do seems like an impossible task. You see, Paul is calling each member of the family to put someone else's concern above their own. And if we're honest, that seems impossible. Well, what can we do about this? Should we not get married? Should we not have children? What can we possibly do? 
Well, I think the answer lies in Colossians 3, verses 1 through 17. Because what you see in verses 18 to 21 is not all that there is. Uh, What you see in these four verses is not all that there is. It is not all that Paul wants you to know about marriage and parenting and life. You see, verses 18 to 21 sits on the massive foundation that is verses 1 through 17. In other words, having a Christ-centered home is only possible when we set our minds on things above. Colossians 3, verse 1. When we set our minds on the truth of our union with Christ. On the truth that we have died with Christ and that we have been raised with Christ and our lives are now hidden with Christ. Which means that we have the power to know Christ and to love Christ and to obey Christ. Uh, We have the power to put to death what is earthly in us. Do you you remember what that means? To, To put to death your besetting sins. And then we have the power to put on the new self, which is to put on the virtues of Christ. Compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience. So that we might bear with one another and forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven us. You see, what you need in order to be a good wife and a good husband and a good child and a good parent is found in Christ. You have everything you need in Christ. This is the message of Colossians. Friends, do not forget that you have the peace of Christ. You have the reconciling peace of Christ which rules in your hearts. And then you have the word of Christ. You have the gospel which dwells in you. And then you have every resource of the name of Christ. The name of Christ, which refers to the authority of Christ and the presence of Christ. In fact, as Paul says in Ephesians, you have every spiritual blessing in Christ. Brothers and sisters, you have everything you need to live out your faith at home. You have Christ. So, if this is what you wish, get married and have lots of kids. Application number two. Seek counsel about submission, headship, and parenting from godly men and women in the church. Seek counsel about biblical submission, biblical headship, biblical parenting from godly men and women in the church. Titus 2 says that older women are to teach what is good and so train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands. You see, older women are to train the younger women so that they can learn how to love and submit to their husbands. In the same way, uh, men are to seek the counsel of other godly men, that they might love their wives with a Christ-like love, and they might lead in a way that promotes their flourishing. And parents of young children are to seek the counsel of parents who have faithfully raised their children in the teaching and admonition of the Lord. so, So parents of young children should seek the counsel of parents of older children. So seek counsel about submission, headship, and parenting from godly men and women in the church. All right, let me also give you a few book recommendations, all right? So here's some book recommendations. Uh, For wives, go out and buy The Excellent Wife by Martha Peace. For husbands, go out and buy The Exemplary Husband by Stuart Scott. For parents, go out and buy Shepherding a Child's Heart by Ted Tripp. 
for children, go out and buy Parents Just Don't Understand by the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. All right? Children, you don't need a book. Just obey. All right? Application number three. Beware of abusing your authority. Beware of abusing your authority. Friends, Paul has a special concern for the weaker members of these two relationships. I hope you see that. In marriage, the weaker one is the wife, since she's the one that has to submit. While in the parent-child relationship, the weaker one is the child who must obey. So those with authority must exercise it the way Jesus did, with love and care so as to not abuse those who have to submit. You know, I think we, we, too, we live in a culture which has too long tolerated abuses in marriage and in the home. This passage speaks against husbands who abuse their wives, whether it's emotionally or sexually or physically. And it speaks against parents who abuse their children in any way. Beware of abusing your authority. Last application, application number four, submit to the Lordship of Christ. Submit to the Lordship of Christ. Notice how many times the word Lord is mentioned in this passage. Right? Verse 18 says, as it's fitting in the Lord. Verse 20, for this pleases the Lord. And then in the verse before our passage, in verse 17, do everything in the name of the Lord. So Christians must live Christ-centered lives by, by submitting to the Lord, which means submitting to the God-given authority structures in a home. Right? We submit out of a love for Christ, and we exercise authority in a way that glorifies Christ. So submit to and exercise authority in a way that points to the Lordship of Christ. And I think that's the point of this passage. Submit to the Lordship of Christ by submitting to authority. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word today, which humbles us. We, we thank you for your gospel, which, which gives us hope. Give us the faith to put our hope in the gospel, not just for salvation, but for everyday Christian living in our home. Lord, I pray for the husbands that they may lead and love and care and cherish their wives in a Christ-like way. And I pray for the wives that they may lovingly submit and enable their husband's leadership. I pray for the children that they may obey out of desire to please God. Oh, Lord, please save our children. And God, I pray that parents would not provoke their kids, but they would encourage their kids. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.